gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm Michael's guest, Ethan Bartlett. So before we get started, there's just some housekeeping we need to do. We've heard from a few folks that we need to slow things down, that we we talk too fast. We, we've heard that review, so... Yeah, apparently, which seems weird. Yeah. Like, but I didn't ever think I was that fast of a talker. But I have been officially accused of doing it on purpose. Yep. So So we're gonna Wait, weren't we gonna do this in Oh sorry, am I ruining it? Am I am I completely slow down. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I I don't know how to do this. Yeah, well Okay, okay, ready? I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna talk slow. Okay. Ready? Yep. I'm the very model of the modern major general. Dang it! Dang it! Dang it. You did the opposite? <laughs> I did. I, I tried so hard to, to go one way that I sort of rebounded and went the other went way the straight into Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Which, as everyone the point knows, of no return. is the opposite of slow. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what might help us slow down? Uh. Marijuana. No. Scotch! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the name of the show for a second. <laughs> Michael and Ethan in a room with marijuana. The spin-off <laughs> doesn't, podcast. Doesn't roll off the tongue quite. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, we're going to have scotch, something far more legal. Far, far more legal. At least in this state. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, the scotch that I have for us today Ooh. is the McCollin Fine Oak Triple Cast Matured Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey 10 years old. You, you uh, skipped one word on that front panel there what, what did i skip well it you skipped 10 oh 10 10 years old yeah, yeah, yeah it does yeah. say 10 twice the, the number, number 10, 10 and then the phrase 10 years old is spelled out yeah thanks so, for pointing that out you're welcome it was a very important detail yes so uh, a little bit about uh the mccollin it says the mccollin fine oak is triple cask matured in a unique complex combination of exceptional oak casks European oak casks seasoned with sherry, American oak casks seasoned with sherry, and American oak casks seasoned with bourbon. This triple cask combination delivers an extraordinarily smooth, delicate, yet complex single malt matured at the McCollin Distillery for a minimum of 10 years. Excellent. So so this could be 100-year-old scotch. It could be. Because they only put a minimum on it, and they didn't put a maximum on it. They didn't. And I'm realizing now, I think this box was at the top of the box and managed to get sliced by the box cutter. Oh, <laughs> that's, yeah, I, I was just figuring that was a weird design thing. Yeah, I did, I did too. I was like, okay, so this is where I open it. Nope, it's not moving. Nope, it's oh, just... that's definitely accidental. Yeah, yeah, it was at the top of the crate that it came to the store in. Big old slit in the box. They hoped so... we wouldn't notice, and we didn't. We until... didn't right now well it's not i think like we're going back at this point well i was just thinking i should so maybe we should just really? cancel just, the podcast uh, uh, for now i'm gonna go get my money back just michael and ethan return scotch for finicky reasons right and don't talk about books at all well here's the bottle <laughs> well it's a beautiful bottle it is sort of a beautiful uh light gold color yes yes color of uh maybe honey yeah I'd, uh, I'd call that a honey color yeah, yeah so let's let's crack into this sucker that sounds weird what i i don't know i just those words came out they are words all right ready yeah ow sorry yeah, that's okay <laughs> i'll try i'll try better next time <laughs> so here we are 
I'll let it go for... this, this once. Oh, okay. See, you'll notice that I came back to the original purpose of this podcast. And actually, and, and actually brought, brought scotch, scotch this month. So. Wow. Well, uh, as the one who created the rift in the first place by bringing the first non-scotch whiskey onto this podcast. That's true. I did break the rules this first. Is, this is your uh, penance. Penance, yeah. Speaking and of rules. If all penance were like this, I would sin a lot more. If, if penance meant I got to drink scotch? Yeah. 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 Anyway. Anyway, speaking of rules, we're going to let you listen to the rules spoken by Ethan's lovely wife, Karen. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. And those are the rules. Very good. <laughs> so. So. Now you know the rules. Now we will uh, initiate the time when the rules take place um, by clinking our glasses. Once we clink the glasses, the rules take effect, and then we start the podcast itself. It hasn't started yet. You're right. You're right. This, this is this is non-podcast. Uh, even though you did insert the podcast tape, gentle listener, and have been you know <sighs> running, uh, you know running your running your podcast tape player uh, this whole time. So. I've given up podcast hasn't started yet i've given up we're not really here i'm done we're all figments yep okay yeah anyway well so with that prost slancha so gentle listener this month the book we are discussing is a borrowed man by gene wolf that's correct um publication date 2015 as far as I know, still Gene Wolfe's most recent novel. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, an impressive, an impressive career. Uh, he, I believe, published his first um, science fiction novel in the early seventies. Um, yeah. So you know, solid. Uh, he's prolific. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now he's eighty and right. still writing. Right. So which let us all hope to hope to be like that one day maybe one day we'll be 80 and still hosting this podcast <laughs> <laughs> wow that's huh that's something to strive for yeah it's, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's a goal we have a it, goal now. it is a goal it is a goal that exists that's true but let's talk about I the just, book <laughs> this boggled my mind a little bit i'm not sure why <laughs> uh, <laughs> just thinking about us being 80 well and like <laughs> talking about books not 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 just that, but like eighty years worth of this podcast oh, sure. backlog. Like how are, how are we going to tell anybody to start listening to this podcast? When we're 
Well, I mean, you don't have to listen in order. That's true, that's true. The episodes are pretty self-contained. Yeah. At least as far as part one, part two. Right, kind of right. Yeah, very well. So, A Borrowed Man by Gene Wolfe. I chose this book partly because um, I am somewhat of a completionist some of the time. Uh, which, powering right through the inherent paradox in that statement, yep. um, <laughs> this is the only Gene Wolfe novel that I had not read. I've oh. read all of his other novels, with the exception of one that went out of print almost immediately and that Gene Wolfe has like since disavowed and I haven't bothered to track down because everyone mm. I've I've you know read who has read it says it's yeah not really worth it including yeah. Gene Wolfe himself. So, but the uh, approximately if you look at the the uh, other books by Gene Wolfe page there are probably 30 something quite a few anyway. books here um, if you count all the ones that were originally published as as books and not the omnibuses. Right. Anyway, um the only other book by Gene Wolfe I've read is Peace, which which is also at your recommendation. Yeah. And has a lot of similarities to this and just Definitely. because of having read that, I was kind of anticipating certain things about this book. Right. Which I think anybody who goes into a book knowing anything about Gene Wolfe should kind of expect. Expect some of those things, yeah. yeah. Um, for those for those who are completely <clears throat> unfamiliar with Gene Wolfe, probably his most famous uh, book or series, um, I think he wrote it as one book and then it got split into four by the... Mm -hmm publishers is called the book of the new sun um which as far as in in like the science fiction and fantasy worlds as far as like influence especially on writers but also on readers and just the genre as a whole the book of the new sun it's not exaggerating to say it ranks up there with the lord of the rings um yeah for you know just just sheer influence and and sort of reinvention of the sort of epic fantasy genre um you know all of those things like like as as big of an influence within the genre as lord of the rings it's not as well known culturally or or it's sort of in the rest of the you know the yeah. literary world as as lord of the rings but definitely a big sort of cornerstone um there is another podcast that i think i mentioned our on our last episode called alzebo soup that is currently doing chapter by chapter read through of the book of the new sun and they Which do is insane yeah and they do one to two chapters per uh episode and they you know they're hour-long episodes mm -hmm. come out every week um and that's like you can do an hour-long episode of a podcast about two chapters of the book of the new sun and still not feel like you know You've they've covered everything, everything. Yeah. like the, the hosts of that podcast themselves say you know we we aren't covering everything we could cover and even with what we've chosen to cover we haven't like used up all of our notes there's stuff that we don't get to say in an episode um and you know so that's like how gene wolf is he's very dense and he's very uh tricky um I think every single one of his novels uh, employs the the device of the unreliable narrator. Yes. Um, and the tricky thing is that that includes the novels that are written in third person. Like you can't Ugh. even trust that objective third person narrator if you encounter him in a Gene Wolfe, which is just masterful book. to it is convey that sort of thing. But yeah. it's like I love that. <laughs> right. That's that's something I love the un unreliable narrator <laughs> idea. And there's um, there's a there's a um, uh, I forgot entirely what I was going to say. Um, Must not have been important. Uh, I hate you. 
I uh, just automatically want to punch people when they say that. <laughs> um, and I almost just lost some game, I, but I'm not sure what I was playing, so clearly that's wrong. Anyway, um, Gene, Gene Wolf, you know, really kicks the unreliable narrator up several notches yes. to, you know, the only other author I personally have read who employs narrators this unreliable and this tricky is probably Vladimir Nabokov. Yep. Um, you know, like in the Book of the New Sun, I've encountered people who are fans of the fantasy genre and they've, they've read the Book of the New Sun and they'll say, you know, this is, this is like, it's a very sort of predictable, cliched uh, story. And it, it always boggled my mind a little bit until I realized that if you don't sort of not trust the narrator in the Book of the New Sun, it seems very much like sort of a, a kind of basic epic fantasy quest you know, a little bit sword and sorcery, sort of a wandering, you know, hero mm. with a sword type of story. However, if you pay attention to the fact that in the Book of the New Sun, um, and in Peace, and in, again, most of most of Gene Wolfe's novels, uh, that the narrator, especially in New Sun, is lying to you almost from page one. You know, within the first page to two pages of the book of the new sun you can catch the narrator in at least one inconsistency and within the first chapter you can catch him in several um and that you know and if you pay attention to the layers of the story and you think about you know what you do trust that that the narrator said versus what seems like a lie or what's inconsistent with other stuff you yeah. start to be able to to be reading an entirely different story mm -hmm. beneath the surface level story um, and part of that, and the guys on Elzebo Soup are pretty masterful about bringing this out, is that Gene Wolfe pays very close attention to his character's rhetorical situation, mm -hmm. um, which is that basic like English comp class thing of like when someone tells a story, they have a purpose and a goal in mind to tell the story, and you know mm -hmm. to some extent that's a basic element of story, right? Like any oh, yeah. any story you have. If you used all of the details and all of the things you possibly could use, it would be an endless story. And mm -hmm. you'd be writing, you know, the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy. <laughs> um, so, like, you pick and choose in order to tell a story. But, you know, a larger rhetorical situation, you think about who the narrator is, what position they're in, what power they have or what power they don't have. Um, mm -hmm. And Wolf's narrators, much more than a lot of first-person narrators in books, are very conscious and are very consciously shaping a story to yes. fit that narrative now in the book of the new sun um the the narrator is very conscious of that because as he's telling the story he's in a position of great power mm -hmm. but the story starts with him as as a very sort of lowly humble um mm. servant to a servant type of character um and so if you if you pay attention to all the subtext that's going on he's consciously shaping a lot of the scenes to make himself seem like the hero whereas if you pay attention to some of the inconsistencies and some of the the things he lets slip when he thinks he's being trickier than he is stuff like that you start to see that maybe he's not always as heroic as um he might seem at first and i think a similar thing is really true about peace yes um, peace is a very different sort of setting but oh yeah um all the things i just said about the narrator of new sun could be said in, in slightly different ways about that narrator yeah as well mm -hmm. um and even about this book too oh yeah absolutely um, that narrator 
who is crafting things in such a way for you to get a certain picture of him. Yeah. And of everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this... So, now yeah. that's a that's a pretty good introduction yeah. to Wolf in this book. And um, the whole idea of just the unreliable narrator who is yeah. crafting everything. If you need a further introduction to Wolf before you read the book, which you're going to do, yes. obviously... Um, Neil Gaiman actually wrote an article that mm-hmm. I think was just called How to Read Gene Wolfe. Hopefully mm-hmm. we can track that article down, because last time I checked it was online. Sure. Um, Maybe I'll find it and put it in the show that's notes. That's what I was where I was going with that sentence, eventually. Um, <laughs> was, yeah, hopefully we can drop it in the show notes, because it really is a really good... Um, it has spoilers for a couple of his books. I know it has spoilers for The Fifth Head of Cerberus, but um, it is a really good introduction to you know, reading Gene Wolfe. Um, I always remember the one sentence from that article that Gaiman wrote where he says there are knives in the text. But basically yeah. you won't you won't necessarily notice that they're there, but they're there. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Right. Leave it to Neil Gaiman to the <laughs> Right. Uh. So, um that's a bit of a longer introduction than normal, but I feel like it warrants deserves it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with that, we're gonna we're gonna pause a second as we traditionally do. So you can read a borrowed man. You can by read Gene a Wolf. borrowed man by Gene Wolfe. Ready and go. go. What'd you think? Right. This is, is the podcast where Michael and Ethan listen to the listener tell us about the book they just read. Right, which is a pretty pretty avant garde podcast format, yep. I would say. Pretty yep. pretty uh, out there, but you but, know, I think. I think the genre has evolved to a point where it can handle this. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. we don't want to be the only narrators of this podcast telling you our story. We want to hear your yeah. story. So Because, as we know, in Gene Wolfe's world, all narr- narrators are unreliable. Yep. And, uh, you know, we can't just be the only unreliable narrators lying to you through this podcast. We, we, we want, want you, you to lie to, lie to, to us. us. Wow, it sounds like we coordinated that. Yep. And I'm, and we definitely did, and I yep. wasn't about to say that we didn't. Put this script away. Yeah, right. Um, good, good, good sound effects work there. Thank you. Um, I think I've got a future in Foley. <laughs> so, so, this book. So, this book. So, one interesting thing about this book, um, it clearly relies very heavily on sort of the noir detective yes. genre. Um, which that itself is multi-layered, right? <laughs> Very much so. Uh, but one of the one of the uh, rules of that particular genre, right, is that you know there's there's sort of some old uh, I I can't remember the name of the article off the top of my head, but there was an article written I want to say in like the 20s or the 30s by someone saying, all right, here are the rules for the mystery genre, right? Mm-hmm. And since then, pretty much all mystery novels and and stories have follow those rules or if they haven't they've been roundly castigated for it right <laughs> um and one of those rules is uh you have to play fair with the reader right <laughs> as in before the conclusion of the mystery is unraveled the yeah. reader should you know traditionally it's maybe the last chapter is sort of the detective um Sitting laying out down in the drawing yeah. room yeah exactly yep. and and laying out what what he thinks happened and why and who did it and laying out all the all the clues as to why or, yep. or how he's added up the clues right just tying it up with a pretty little bow right right there but the tradition is that you should be able to stop 
before that last chapter mm -hmm. and solve it yourself based on, solely on stuff that's in the text already. Yep. yep. Um, now, Michael, my first question to you is, do you think that Gene Wolfe followed that rule Not in at all. this book? Not at all. No? He, he, took, he took the skeleton of uh, a detective uh, traditional myst murder mystery sort of thing and just planted it on top of this book. Um, or but, did he plant it in that in the ground and grow this book out of it? Maybe that's what he did. But <laughs> whatever metaphor you choose, he was unfair to the reader. Okay, and uh, I, 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 I I do want to hear the rest of that thought. Um, but I think my follow up question may may go well in this place. Okay, so I acknowledge that you said no yes, to that first I question. I say no <laughs> with the knowledge that you know. You read this book, and in the last chapter, the narrator does sit one character, not a whole room full, right. but one character down, but and basically tell in a her, room. yeah, in a, in almost literally a drawing room, the twenty second century version of a drawing room, yep, and tells her that he figured everything out, that he solved the mystery, and he tells her how he added the clues up. Yep. Now I don't, I, I realize this is not new information because you did just read this book and you know that, right. Um, Secondly, and this was what wrinkled like a week ago, having finished this book for the first time, I might have disagreed with what you said just now. Mm -hmm. um, and here's why. A lot of Gene Wolfe novels are set up like this. Like Gene Wolfe is clearly, you know, he's not a formula writer in any sense of the word, but he's clearly been very influenced by mystery novels. And yeah. he takes that into into sort of the science fiction and fantasy genre. Um However, uh, he, um, so he, he plants clues in all, in all of his, in all of his, uh, uh, books, right? He plants yeah. clues that he doesn't spell out the, the interpretation of them for the reader. Right. He lets you figure it out. So honestly, what I was expecting out of this novel, based on having read all of Gene Wolfe's other novels, was for what is in fact the last chapter in this novel, for that to not be there. Oh, okay. I was expecting some kind of like, you know, yeah. insipid seeming half ass conclusion where where Ern just runs off into the sunset and you're left to put all the clues together. And I had some mm -hmm. theories. Um and what made me very suspicious of the actual last chapter of this novel is the fact that my theory some some of my theories were proven correct. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which seems like an awful thing to say maybe, but like that's that's the Gene Wolfe effect. You yes. you second guess yourself and you second guess your second guesses. Mm -hmm. And no percent of the time have I ever seen someone do a first read of a Gene Wolfe novel and interpret it correctly. Right. Um so it's that said he did spell out the the conclusion in this in this. Yes, in this he book. did. He, so, and he you still don't think he's uh he's he's telling the no, truth. No, because here's here's the thing. So so the the end spoilers. Uh, he's it, like they read the novel. Yeah, everyone listening at this point read the novel. They've all read it. So, but like so the 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 mystery, so to speak, is yes. who killed Conrad Coldbrook Senior. Yes, kind of. Maybe uh, Junior as well. Sort of the sub mystery is who killed Conrad Coldbrook Jr. Right. Yeah. Right. And so that's that's what we get the answer to in this last chapter. And right. the answer is Conrad Coldbrook Coldbrook Senior killed Conrad Coldbrook Junior. And, and then Conrad his daughter Colette. Yeah, Colette killed Conrad Coldbrook Senior. Yeah. Uh, and here's the thing: I figured that out. 
Right. Me too. Like I, I figured that out and but the way I figured it out was not a fair detective way. Oh, okay. It was not forensic how I figured that out. Okay. It was based on distrust of everyone talking. Uh-huh. I, I listed out the three possible timelines uh, right. of those things that occur. Right. Uh, the first timeline you hear is Colette's version of events. Okay. And it's that Conrad Sr. dies and then Conrad Jr. is murdered. Right. Uh, that's, that's the timeline she gave, those two. Uh, the other two timelines are a little more complex, which immediately gives them a little more veracity. Right. Um, the uh, the one is that Conrad Sr. leaves, then Conrad Sr. returns, then Conrad Sr. kills Conrad Jr., and then Conrad Sr. dies, probably killed by Colette. Right. That's timeline number two, which is the one that turns out being correct. Right. The third one, uh, which you kind of hear from others as they're kind of like speculating about these things or saying, this is all we know, right. is Conrad Sr. leaves, Conrad Jr. dies, then Conrad Sr. returns, and then Conrad Sr. dies. Right. Um, so that's just like a little bit of an inversion of steps two and three in right. there from uh, timeline two. But um, so having, like, I listed out those timelines because you get this hint that... Uh, uh, the narrator, Ern, doesn't trust Colette. Right. He doesn't trust what she's telling him. Right. And I so mean, you of get, course, you're that, not that one's a That one's a pretty spelled out hint within the first 25 pages. Yep. When Colette says, women lie yep. all the time. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> which obviously is a, is a pretty, you know, problematic statement coming mm-hmm. here in 2015, right? If you don't keep in mind the fact that A... This character has several hidden motives for yeah. saying everything that she says, and mm-hmm. B that she is a character in Ern's uh, world and in his narrative, and mm-hmm. that he has several hidden motives for having her explicitly say that she lies all the time. Right. Um. So yeah, which is <laughs> again just the kind of mental gymnastics that are par for the course with a Gene Wolfe novel. Right. Uh, but the what what I what I guess that boils down to is that I figured out the end, or I figured out what happened with that murder, right. th- those murders, not because of your typical murder mystery evidence, but right. just because I'd been fed the idea of these people lying, right? And sure. so that challenged me to kind of hear what was in between what they were saying, right? Um, Which is exactly where Wolf wants you to go. Right. He wants you to be looking in between the lines, but right. then also he wants you to be looking in between the lines that are in between the lines. Yes. Um, also, here's another problem. Um, so the mystery that's solved at the end is right. who killed Conrad Colebrook Jr. and Sr. Right. Um, that's not the mystery that began the book. <laughs> oh, yeah? What's the mystery that began the book? What's the secret? <laughs> yes. Right. Wait, but we, we solved that, too. Like, that's yes. 100 pages earlier. Right. Do you not believe that secret, either? No! <laughs> You're, okay, good, because I don't either. I <laughs> like, don't believe it at all. No! <laughs> um. So... So, yeah. Yeah, no, so, like, and that's, that's, like, just a little bit of more verbal gymnastics that this narrator is doing by starting with here's the mystery proposition right which if if you follow through any normal narrative you've got the mystery and then you've got the trying to solve the mystery and then you've got the solution to the mystery right here we've got the mystery then we've got a muddled mess of trying to solve several things Right. And then we've kind of got a solution to that. And then we've got a solution to the mystery we didn't start with. Right. Which, you know, 
some version of this is not unheard of, especially because this is not only, you know, situated within the mystery genre um, generally, but it's very specifically sort of that that 1930s hard-boiled pulp mystery where often you have either a consulting detective who's sort of outside of the bounds of normal police work, which obviously is a tradition that goes back to Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes um, or even like Bulldog Drummond, some of those old pulp guys from the late victorian period um or or the the character is like uh uh you know someone who's completely not actually a detective um nick and nora Mm -hmm. from the thin man come to mind um you know so uh that that's not unheard of and and having sort of a macguffin to start the mystery off which then sure. take a right turn that's not unheard of either the the maltese falcon is a classic of this genre and you know it starts off being what is the maltese falcon who you know where where did it come from but then it takes several right turns and at the end you're solving some murders among yeah. the other the other uh um solutions right um but here's here's what I think, and I don't know for sure if this is disagreement or just a, a parallel track to what you're saying. Sure. Um, I think that the mystery that Ern solves at the end of his narrative, you can solve by playing fair with the clues and the evidence that are left in the narrative that Ern creates. Sure. Um, the the key to unlocking it for me was just the moment when. Um, early in the book, Colette says her her um, her brother died, and that Colette had called this like maid service. That was this whole thing where it's when someone dies in the home, you they come in, they clean everything up, they get mm-hmm. everything shipshape, and like you don't have to see it. And, yeah, you know, which seems like a pretty humane sort of service, and, and oh like, sure, something they're like they're called the mercy maid. Yeah, 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 something yeah. Like that. And it seems like something that, you know, someone in Colette's position, especially having the money to burn, yeah. um, you know, and, and not wanting to deal with that, like, it seems it seems very logical. And then if you pay attention 100, 150 pages later in the book, um, uh, Ma, I don't want to mispronounce her name, Mahala? Maybe. Yeah, Mahala, when she's doing yeah. research, because Ern asks <clears throat> her to look up the maids, um, mm-hmm. he she says, you know oh, there's, there's no such thing as the maids. Like, this is not something that exists. And that was just what clued me in to the fact that Colette's lying about this. And then, you know, you pay attention to the clues that Ern, in retrospect, suspiciously, candidly drops throughout the rest of the, the uh, narrative. You see, oh, um, either Colette or her father murdered uh, um, the, the son. And... Yeah. Um, you know, it makes more sense for the father to have done it because Colette starts off by saying that, you know, her brother had always been very kind to her and she was always almost sort of embarrassingly fond of him. Mm-hmm. Um, then, uh, uh, so, it you know, it makes sense. Well, the father murdered the son and you have the, the jewels and the money and all that as mm-hmm. motive. Um, she saw it. She was fond of the brother. So, you know, the, the, uh, uh, makes sense for her to take revenge by murdering the father right right um and the fact that by page 200 out of 300 i had more or less guessed all of this 
combined with the fact that it turned out to be correct sure again was what clued me in that i probably was not looking deep enough here yeah and like (laughs) you know i I do want to pause and say that this is you know probably the sixth time we've we've said something like this already and it can lead to a sort of existential despair Mm -hmm. where it's like i will never get to the bottom because you know gene wolf is so much smarter and so much more layered in his writing (laughs) than i and thinking than i will ever be Right. Um, Which is sometimes what I think is just Gene Wolfe's motive in writing is just to cause everyone to have an existential crisis. No, and I think that's (laughs) very legitimate. I think that's part of what Gene Wolfe is doing on a literary level. Yep. Is questioning that idea of a monomyth or a mononarrative. Yep. um, You know, and and saying that even even when we get to truth, even when we get to something that's, that's for sure real, we get there through a collection of unreliable narrators yeah like that i think i i didn't mean to go this existential no, this soon but, but i think now that's... i want you to write this paper that's <laughs> like comparing and contrasting even that's not quite right but like um um take gene wolf and set him up against the the monomyth ideas like joseph campbell uh, right and like right have well, them argue <laughs> see <laughs> see how that argument pans out that would be very interesting i think you know and that's that's a legitimate idea when i was talking monomyth which yeah. i know i got that term from joseph campbell but i was thinking more in terms of the stuff wolf critiques tends to be sort of uh manifest destiny yeah, type yeah, yeah and yeah. other like national narrative type mm-hmm. um sort of myths sort of these cultural myths that say you know there's there's one myth there's one destiny for this culture and you know wolf is in a in a post-colonial age as a as a white male is very aware of the the um mm-hmm. problems that those kind of things cause sure um, you know some of some of his I, I always come back to one of his novels that came out i want to say five to ten years ago called an evil guest which Mm. starts as a pulp noir pulp type detective novel and takes a hard turn into not that at all and there's very much they end up on on some islands and there's very much sort of a colonial thing going on um so you know and and even that title an evil guest is provocative right in that sense it's there's there's a there's an occupational sort of right yeah yeah very much yeah exactly exactly and you know it's referring to gold like the the mm. epigraph of the novel says something like gold comes as an evil guest oh uh, um, okay okay you know, so yeah, yeah. um <laughs> you know and that's that's which then you've got like that sort of mo- money is the thing in this book too right but here it's emeralds right but also taken from some primitive cultured yeah. planet sort of thing now that, so now that like we're that saying theme this, is still here definitely images of of yeah. colonization and occupation definitely like yeah we're gonna set up this whole connection this whole trade route essentially yeah. just to suck dry this place that we find right right um yeah so yeah, yeah that's that's all very interesting very interesting if, if i can um like okay, so I don't want to discount your figuring everything out here, but I want to demonstrate okay, well, why I find. Just to conclude that yeah, sentence, the fact that I figured it all out on page two hundred, yeah. out of three hundred, made me pretty sure I hadn't figured it out. And in I, I I'll do. Sure. I did what I admit was a very skimming second read 
because um, my goal was to read it once as long before now as possible and then maybe spend the, the week before doing a second reading. Um, and I just, you know, I say ran out of time. Um, the video game Shadow of Mordor may have been involved in this <laughs> completely uh, um, out of my hands, running out of time. That did happen. So, But I, I did do sort of a cursory second read and went back to some passages and some some scenes that I thought were mm-hmm. key and dug some more stuff out. And I am now thoroughly convinced that that um, my suspicion on page 200 of the original read was correct, that I did not have an idea of what was actually going on. And I'm not 100% certain that I do sure. still at this yeah, point. Yeah, I'm, I'm not either. But uh, just to, to back up my, yeah. my point about um, how the the narrative is unfair to the reader if yes. this were your typical dime mystery novel yeah the murder sure. mystery sort of thing right. so it does it, it, it carries in a bunch of those murder mystery tropes those right. like agatha christie staples right. including the drawing room scene at the end right um but which as, yeah the narrative being constructed by a clone of a detective novelist right should not more, surprise us no exactly and that's that's like more of these multi-layered things right um but that that, that just feeds into the idea that okay so this guy is a clone or a reclone as the term is is used which right. just like calling it a reclone just adding that re on top of yeah. it just makes like it's it's got more layers right, right. <laughs> that implies there are more layers right just calling it a reclone instead of just a clone because it's it's, it's repetitively redundant yes um to call it a reclone. Anyway, uh, <laughs> shut up, Gene Wolfe. Uh, no, uh, so with with some of these tropes that that um, I've got three thoughts going on at once. I'm gonna st- I'm gonna finish right. the one I started. Yeah. Um, so these tropes, including things like laying out the murder scene, so describing it in detail, so yeah. that the reader can get a very clear picture of the the blueprints of wherever we are and that's right. that's done a couple of times it's done right. with colette's apartment it's done with the the mansion uh and all the floors of the mansion where where you can see okay this room is here this room is here right. this room is here so the idea being in a mystery novel you can keep track of all of that right. and then figure out where things go right. and who's not in this room at this time and, and right. so forth yeah you, he some of these passages almost it's like you could lay out a clue board. Yes, absolutely, you absolutely, know. and like even in some, I'm I'm thinking of Murder on the Orient Express by yeah. Agatha Christie. Like, yeah. there's a diagram where she, she right. drew out right. the, the car on the train. <laughs> right. Um. But uh. So so that's 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 a, a little bit of a trope, and that's included here in this book. Um. And the one I'm thinking about is on page forty, where uh you actually hear it, um. From Colette's own mouth, she's the one actually laying out the the layout of her apartment. Yes. At the bottom of the page, she says, I have five rooms and a bath. So, all right, all, all of a sudden, now we're thinking five rooms. There are five rooms yeah. for us to keep track of. And then they're listed. Uh, and this is this is fair. She lists all five here. Yeah. The, the lounge, the dining, dining room, room, the bathroom, the kitchen, my bedroom uh, are the five rooms here. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, yeah, I just had to double check. Yep, all five of those are listed here. Okay. Um, and here's the the problem with this because then there's a thing that happens with a mystery involved where we're like just a minor mystery within this. Yeah, it's this. like a sub mystery. A sub mystery, and the sub mystery is what happens to the book. Right. And what happens to the book is it went down the chute. Right. Which was not listed. Right. Which is unfair to the reader. Right. Also, it occurs to me. Uh, so, five rooms and a bath, lounge, dining room, oh, kitchen bedroom uh wait 
lounge, dining room, bathroom, kitchen, bedroom. So there are technically six rooms, including the bath. See, yeah, and there are only and five there are only listed. five listed. Which if you're ah! <laughs> so if you're counting, you get to five, and then you're like, good, I'm done. But five yep. rooms and a bath, and bath was on the list of five. I don't think. I don't think we ever hear what the sixth room is. No, I don't think we do. And I do have a suspicion that is building and building about what that sixth room is. Okay. Or not even what it is necessarily, but what its purpose is. Okay. Okay. Um, <sighs> see? See? And so that, that's that's another example of where these tropes are right. presented and then completely flipped on their heads. Right, right. Um, with that, that's, that's adjoining to my next thought here. Uh, which is to the layers of who this character is. Right. This this is a reclone of a mystery novelist right. writing a book. Right. And who, interestingly enough, um, and this is yet another thing that that makes me, you know, assume there are multiple layers going on here, tells us multiple times that there are things he can't tell us. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the rules that he establishes and then reaffirms at least one to two other times several, over several the course times, of yeah. the narrative where he says the way I'm constructed, A, I can't write new stories, which what is this exactly. if, if not that? Exactly. Um secondly, he says like there are certain ways he can talk and there are certain ways that he can write, which you could maybe argue that there's some wiggle room like he's writing what he thinks of as like a true account or something sure and he's physically able to write so maybe that somehow skirts around this, this right idea. but like um, somehow he does this weird thing where where this mechanism that he describes at the beginning of one of these chapters like yeah it it takes dictation but also he can input it manually right and except he's not very good at using it which i don't buy based on his use all. of all of the other technology in the entire book he, yeah he yep. gets very quickly very competent he's at a it. very quick learner yeah figuring out how to drive and fly within the book right <laughs> um within minutes apparently if yep. you if you yep. yeah uh so yeah all of this just makes me very very suspicious that like he's you know with constructing the narrative itself in certain specific ways so for one thing it does follow the shape of a detective mystery um which maybe is the only thing he can do like maybe he's built that way um and if there is stuff it basically if nothing Mm. else this implies that if there there are certain things that even if it happened and even if he wanted to write it or to write it a certain way he couldn't sure which what do you then do you you leave it in those those gaps and those you know spaces between the lines. It's a really kind of sinister take on write what you know. Mm-hmm. Like he can't write anything but what he knows, which is right. mystery novels, because that's what he's been programmed with. Right. Except he's not allowed to write new mystery novels. Right. Um, and so he has to write what exists as right. a mystery novel, which like kind of takes some of the heat off of him maybe right exactly that's exactly (laughs) what it does and that's why i'm so suspicious of it yeah i don't i don't know that anything that makes the narrator seem like better better (laughs) yeah which and i think and i think he wants to position himself a certain Mm. way and again this is going back to what the narrator in book of the new sun does too um he wants to position himself in a certain way to achieve certain effects yeah. That's that rhetorical situation, but it's rhetoric in the very well, sort of most strictest sense of it's mm-hmm. persuading you to a certain right. point of Which view. Which is something we talked about at the beginning of this whole podcast run, right. where we were talking about the novel as like a, a defense. Right. Which is kind of how this one right. starts, talking about murder, 
Like, murder is not always such a terrible thing. Uh, right. And, Which, and then it says the law is not perfect at the end of that Yet paragraph. again, um, a very, very suspicious statement that yes. is paid off. It is. It is. Because like, he's, what he wants us to think mm-hmm. is that he's arguing that Colette was justified. murdered her father, but it was justified. And that yep. all well, of he his actions. He calls her an agent of justice or yes. something. Yes. Right at the end. Instrument of justice. Instrument yeah. of ju- and, and so he's, he's shaping this narrative narrative to say, okay, I'm going to foreshadow this right at the beginning play fair and tell you that there's a murder here yep i get to the end i tell you what the murder is and who did it i'm playing fair again yep i myself am the good like it's almost like a knight in shining armor if you look at it a certain way who like could could get her for it but chooses not to right because i am virtuous and definitely not a because i have a crush on her or b because i'm fighting for my life right um (laughs) which is a whole can of worms i didn't intend to open even in this episode but here we are here we are um so murder is not always such a terrible thing it is bad sure sometimes awfully awfully bad but only sometimes well, and then he has um, a line later in the book too, where he says, "There's all kinds of murder." Right, and that's that's in the in the cli- in the last chapter in, in the yep. climax as well. He he um almost gives us a dictionary of murder and yeah. types of murder and and motives mm-hmm. and and so forth. Um, so yeah, uh, that's uh, I I was suspicious right from the time I read mm-hmm. that opening that no. he's gonna tell me he's gonna he's gonna drop this he's gonna get as far away from it as possible and then just at the end when when i you know i'm suddenly like wait a second he's gonna throw me me the payoff for everything and he's and i i just somehow knew within those first couple pages he's gonna throw me a bone and it's gonna be the wrong bone yep it's gonna literally be like you throw a bone to a dog to distract them from the hand stake that's over here yep (laughs) Yep. Um, he's treating us like dogs yeah yeah um, um and so that's but he's a wolf that's very he's suspicious i hate you for that and i <laughs> love on. you for can that. i can i make you hate me even more yeah. did you notice Always. the the narrator's name and how often he clarifies his name uh-huh it's Ern a smith and then he always addends that with smith with an e mm-hmm. just like gene wolf is wolf <laughs> with an e wow and and that's not an unfair thing to fold in here. Like, no. it's not reaching too far. Because Gene Wolfe wrote a short story that's in, I think, uh, I think it's in Stories from the Old Hotel. Okay. It might be in, um, it might be in the Island of Dr. Of Death. it's spelled like stories. Yeah, right. Like, uh, with, with an, an e. e. It's with spelled with an e. e. With an E. So it probably is in that one. The other guess I had was the Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories, <laughs> which is one of my favorite short story collection titles of all time, because the title story of the, the collection is called the Island of Dr. Death and other stories. That's um, awesome. Right. So uh, I, I think it's in stories from the old hotel that... He has a story that's a pastiche of a Nero Wolf um, story. It's it's just like he took the character of Nero Wolf. It's almost fan fiction, except Gene Wolf is an extremely legitimate published author, so we we won't <laughs> right. you know disparage him by, him by using that term. But right. other than that, it's basically what it is, right? Um, and they go through the whole story. Nero Wolf does his thing. It's wonderful and thrilling, and you know, as I remember, plays pretty fair. But that's probably wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a line right at the end of that story 
where um somehow there's sort of a you know it's a there's like four MacGuffins in the story but one is this envelope that ends up on his desk that uh has is addressed just wolf and Nero Wolf the you know the classic pulp noir detective hit spells his name the way that Gene Wolf does with an e right right so this envelope is just labeled wolf l o w o l f e um and someone picks up the envelope and says oh here you you missed this this was part of your mail and in the story and you're going to explode in a second here good in the story Nero Wolf says oh no that was a, that was misdelivered that's not for me that's for the author of this story I'm dead. Gentle listener, if you heard a thump, that was Michael's head hitting the table, possibly for the last time, because he did say he was dead. I am dead now. Yeah, right? For real. So, like, that that catch on with any other author might just be a clever thing, or it might be reaching too far. With but, Gene Wolfe, it's not just a clever thing, and it's definitely not right. reaching too far. Also, because the narrator is an author... Yes. So, okay, here, here's where the layers are all the way going now. <laughs> right. Okay, we've got this story, a murder right. mystery written by a re-clone of right. a murder mystery author right. who is the narrator in a story being told by an author right. <laughs> named Gene Wolfe. Yes. <laughs> um, and if, you're, if you don't think that Gene Wolfe is aware of that with every single line that he's writing, you haven't been paying attention to anything we said. Nope, not at all. So just um, turn off the podcast now, go home. Stop the tape, throw it against the <laughs> the wall unspool it maybe make some sort of artsy craftsy thing to hang from the ceiling with the spools because this podcast is useless to you <laughs> also okay did we just like anti-advertise our podcast? <laughs> uh, i don't know if you've listened to any of our episodes but that's not the first time that would have happened no um also so some another thing i want to pull just as support for several things we've already said yeah um, it it feels like we kind of just have to. Here here's the difficult thing about Gene Wolfe novels yes. of the two that I've read. Yes. To make your case about anything, you have to make your case about something. Right. You really have to you argue do. your case. You do, and that's exactly again what Gene what Wolf he wants. wants. Yes. Um, yeah. So so the critic who wrote um, the the novel a biography mm-hmm. that I got that line about the the you know the novel being the sort of a, a defense testimony. Yeah. Um, Gene Wolfe somehow, that, that book came out in like 2013 or 2014, but Gene Wolfe somehow saw that line in the future and said, oh, I'm going to do this better, but then started his career 40 years before that. Yeah, um, Gene Wolfe is a time traveler. I mean, that would explain one entire ton of Gene things. Gene Wolfe is Dr. Manhattan. Oh, no. He's, <laughs> he's smarter than Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> He's Dr. Manhattan with a better brain. And I fully expect to get struck down by both of them for saying that. (laughs) Um, So, okay. Now, from the opening of this book, Mm -hmm. from the third paragraph, um, I am really a young guy behind an older guy's face. Mm -hmm. You must understand that or you will not understand half the stuff I am going to tell. Which, okay, so first of all, pure indication that if we don't keep this first part in mind these 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 opening what seven sentences we will not understand the rest of it yeah um which does feel like gene wolf just dropping in your lap here's how to read this book please kind of yeah um which then you look at a picture of Gene Wolfe and you're like, is that him? Is he a young guy behind an old guy's face? <laughs> right, which, oh my gosh, that's, 
a whole level that we don't really want to scratch you know lest we be struck down for blasphemy <laughs> i was just gonna say because we could do an entire podcast about that and i won't get to tell you my theory next time oh <laughs> stay tuned gentle listener anyway theories we'll i'm really late wildly <laughs> i'm really a young guy behind an older guy's face um so ostensibly on the surface mm-hmm. that's talking about his Recloneage, right? Yes. Like he's he's like you could you could read it that he's talking about being a reclone. And yes, he's that. been created relatively recently, but from everything we can glean, these reclones sort of pop into existence, fully formed, fully adult, fully with their originals, thoughts and memories. But he's a he's you know he himself, the reclone telling the story, has not existed for that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so. That's um, uh, again, sort of, sort of the surface level, right? So you're you're a young guy, and that you haven't existed that long, but presumably we made this reclone with an older guy's face, right? right. Um, to look sort of like probably the author picture that's on more of of Ern A. Smith's with an E novels, right? right. Um, so people is more recognizable. It's like if you if you made a reclone of Mark Twain, you wouldn't. Make you a wouldn't have a, a baby Mark Twain. Yeah, or even like a 20-year-old guy with right. mustaches who's out west. You'd have the old white-haired, white-mustache, white-suit Mark Twain. Yep. Because he's the he's one the you one that you would know. Yep. Yeah, he's the icon. Okay. So, that's that's on page... Uh, technically, seven, nine. nine. Um, Which but is the first the, page. Yeah. Um, so, fast forward to page 20, right? Um, the second conversation, really, that he has with Colette... Mm-hmm. Um, the first one being the one where he really sort of subtly manipulates her into checking him out from the library. Um, or e- even if not manipulates, like, he's almost like Oliver Twist at the orphanage trying to seem like the best orphan so he gets adopted. Uh-huh. With a similar motivation because Oliver Twist getting adopted and him getting checked out are both how these characters live. Yep. Literally live. Literally extend their life. The most primal you know, motive of all, right? Yep. Survival. Um, yeah. So, page 20, uh, they're having this conversation and they sort of, they're sort of having this kind of flirty, bantery, um, thing where they're getting to know each other. Um, uh, and she, Colette says in the second paragraph, I'm a good judge of age. Shall I tell you how old you are? And there's already been some back and forth about mm-hmm. how old is he, how old is his character, quote-unquote, his author, yep. original. You know, there's there's back and forth about all of that. Um, so this is sort of a loaded question. But mm-hmm. um, Ern, who is at least projecting to us, broadcasting to us, that he already has a giant crush on Colette, yep. nods and tries to smile and says, I wish you would, which is obviously sort of bar pickup talk. You you take the first opportunity to use the phrase "I wish you would" to any offer that she makes. You know, that's, right? That's right. that's basic bar stuff, right? Okay, so Colette says you're 21 or 22, but you could easily pass for 30 or more. Most people wouldn't believe that you're only 22. Now, here is where this is complete horse garbage manure, horse manure. Yep. Um. So, the way that she says that is slated to saying you look older, right? Which would seem like it agrees. But the oldest age she says is 30. Which is You could pass for 30 old. or more. You're you're 21 or 22. 
she's guessing that he's a youngish man. Yep. She she is the the age that she's guessing is not an age anyone colloquial colloquially thank you would describe <laughs> as old yeah. as an old man. You wouldn't look at someone who Especially not when it's implied heavily in this book that people live oh well over a hundred. Well over a hundred. Yeah. You like you would never look at the same person and say, Oh, that is a young man but they have an old man's face and and also say you look like you could be 30 or more right that's that's it it sounds nope. similar but it's completely contradictory right well and Which then he again, goes on too and he says and it was not quite true i decided that i had an old man's memories and a young man's mind yes <laughs> so he he almost completely denies that sentence that you right. read from the third paragraph of the book which which in a sense is gene wolf playing fair even if it's not Ern smith playing fair yeah with an e um with an e with uh where he he says uh uh you know it's gene wolf within the first 10 pages having his narrator contradict himself mm. keeping in mind like a good author should that you know maybe this is someone's first gene wolf novel you know not all of us have read one other novel or 20 other novels whatever (laughs) some people will pick this up and you know so he's still gene wolf still playing as fair as you could possibly expect him to play right um which like this this i i I had this thought several times throughout reading this book yes that this would be a fun one to throw into a mystery book club right have people read this in a mystery book club right and what they would do if if they were sort of used to mystery novels and trained to read mystery yep. novels, is they'd figure out all the stuff that Ern tells them at the end. Yep. But I, you know, you know who who knows who's in a particular book club. You might very well have one or more perceptive readers who sure. would get that there's more going on here than a typical mystery novel. But if you just had someone trained on mystery novels who just liked mystery novels and especially who had never encountered gene wolf who i'm tempted to argue is a genre unto himself yeah pretty much um you know if that was the case they they might completely miss a perfectly intelligent reader might completely miss yeah all of the other crap that Ern smith with an e is pulling right below sort of a couple surfaces of this novel yeah which i think we're gonna have to uh get into yep we'll have to talk about more of this next time so when we have all of our theories coming out and gentle listener next time on michael and ethan in a room with scotch ethan solves maybe some of the actual mystery maybe Maybe. he does he thinks he does he also admits that he's probably wrong and is probably lying to you to accomplish some other hidden rhetorical goal there's a secret incorporated within ethan Ethan is a mystery wrapped in an enigma wrapped in a secret. In a nice spring roll. (laughs) So with that gentle listener. That's not the first time you've called me a spring roll on this podcast. I feel like last time I objected, but today I'm, I don't know. You're okay with it? I'm okay. All right. That's good. I'm I'm mellow. Well, so next time we will continue our discussion of A Borrowed Man by Gene Wolfe. In the meantime, check the show notes. You'll see what book we're reading next month. Uh, read You'll along with that. A link to that Neil Gaiman article. That Neil Gaiman uh, article. How to Read Jane Wolf, yep. which we're telling you here at the end of the podcast. You might want to read before you read the book. Yep. So, so go back in time. Yeah. Like Gene Wolf. Like Gene Wolf can. <laughs> Just write to Gene Wolf for the secret. I'm sure he'll be. He'll yeah, be happy he'll, to share. He'll, he'll give it to you. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So uh, otherwise, read along. Uh, join the discussion. Visit us at tapestryradio.org. Leave your feedback in the contact section and put Scotch Talk in the subject line. 
Uh, if you like what we do here each month, review us on iTunes and give us five stars and a review. Uh, also follow us on Twitter at Room with Scotch uh, and on Facebook. Find us in the Facebook group as well, the Tapestry Radio Tap House. We will admit anybody who requests to join, uh, as long as you're not a robot uh, or a Nazi or Gene Wolfe. No, we want Gene. No, Wolf. we want. If, <laughs> if Gene Wolfe requests to join on the condition that we kick the rest of you out, we will <laughs> kick the everybody. Rest of you out. <laughs> we're sorry, but like, yeah, we're not sorry. Also. Yeah, no, not at all. Okay. Uh, follow the network also, Tapestry Radio Network. Uh, enjoy some of our other great shows, Intermission, Pokemon Rollout, uh, and rate and review those shows as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. And... You can find me on Twitter at at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Bartlett with a J. Yes. <laughs> that would have been an easier way to say that. Uh... <laughs> And I think that's it. That's it. So, yep. Join us us in two weeks. Two weeks. For part two, where we definitely solve the mystery with no loose ends left. All of your questions will be answered. And we'll give you the answer to Gene Wolf. And we will give you emeralds also. Emeralds. Woo! Obscurantism and Obfuscation. 
orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.